like to invite your attention to Psalm 33. Psalm 33. As we consider this psalm, uh, I think it stands to be said that there's much to be said about these verses, but this evening, for our purposes, I hope to approach them relatively briefly and devotionally uh, as we look at them. But in Psalm 33, we see this psalm of praise to God to Thank him for his blessings as he grants them in his words and in his work. It reminds us of God's creating power, of his sovereign governance over his creation, and of his saving grace. And so this psalm is a call for us to meditate on God's character through his words and his works, and then to overflow out of that meditation in praise to God and giving thanks to him for who he is and for what he does. So let's begin reading in Psalm 33, verse 1. It says, Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with a lyre. Make music to him with a ten-stringed harp. Sing a new song to him. Pray, play skillfully on the strings with a joyful shout. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is trustworthy. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the Lord's unfailing love. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the seas into a heap. He puts the depths into storehouses. Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came into being. He commanded, and it came into existence. The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has chosen to be his own possession. The Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. He forms the heart of them all. He considers all their works. A king is not saved by a large army. A warrior will not be rescued by great strength. The horse is a false hope for safety. It provides no escape by its great power. But look, the Lord keeps his eyes on those who fear him, those who depend on his faithful love to rescue them from death and to keep them alive in famine. We wait for the Lord. He is our help and shield. For our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in his holy name. May your faithful love rest on us, Lord, for we put our hope in you. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. And so as we come to Psalm 33 and we begin to, to think about all that this psalm teaches us about God and his works in the world, the psalmist calls us to rejoice in the Lord and to praise him for his word and praise him for his works. It calls us to rejoice in that and give thanks and to sing, and but to also do so in a way that flows out of a theological knowledge of who God is, that our, our uh, praise, our pr uh, praise to God is born out of theology. Our doxology, if you will, is born out of our theology. And so the more that we know about God, the more we meditate on his character as he's revealed him in his word, then we are able to delight in him and find increasing joy in him that overflows 
in praise to him. And so as we look to the first three verses, we see the psalmist calls us to rejoice in the Lord by worshiping him. It calls us to rejoice, or perhaps your translation reads to sing joyfully. This means to sing with jubilance, to exalt the Lord, rejoicing in his goodness. This is a call for fervent, fervorous praise toward the Lord. And it says that this praise from the upright is beautiful. The praise of the righteous is beautiful to the Lord as received from him. Not only in singing, but praising him with the lyre, making music with the ten string harps, using these instruments to aid in praising the Lord, but also stirring the hearts of the worshiper to focus on the character of God. And so here and elsewhere in the Psalms, instruments are commended to us in Christian worship. But as we rejoice and as we sing this song to the Lord, it says in verse 3 to sing a new song to him. And this new song, I think, overflows out of a fresh awareness of God's grace. As we meditate on the fact that his mercies are new every morning, as we meditate on his compassion and grace overflowing to us, as we meditate on his goodness, as we have experienced it in our lives, the psalmist calls us to sing a new song to the Lord. But ultimately and finally, this is uh, based in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we who are new covenant saints are able to sing a new song of redemption because we reflect back on the cross of Christ and sing a new song unto the Lord in this way. We are able to focus on this redeeming grace that God has poured out, lavished on us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we sing a new song to the Lord and play skillfully on the strings with a joyful shout. And so this new song focuses on God's praiseworthy character and focuses on his deeds fundamentally primary in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so then it is sung with sincerity only by those who have truly experienced his grace. That's why it calls us in verse 1, rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. Certainly this is referring to those who are living uprightly before the Lord, abiding by his precepts and living in his commandments. But we know and understand that that is only possible because we have been made right, declared righteous by the Lord Jesus, who is that one righteous one in whom we rest in his righteousness. Because we have been declared righteous, we are now able to sing this new song unto the Lord, praising him for what he has done for us in our lives. And so it calls us to rejoice. It calls us to worship. And one author notes this. It says, note the call in this verse for freshness and skill as well as fervor. Three qualities rarely found together in religious music. Well, I praise the Lord that that is found in our religious worship here at Grace Covenant Church. As we meditate and think and sing about the things of God, it's theologically rich and it's sung with fervor and it's sung with freshness meditating on God's new mercies every day and so as we we think about this dear Christian this calls us to sing loudly and sing fervently but it also calls us to sing reflectively now we're going to get to some of those things here in a few moments but it calls us to sing reflectively meditating and thinking about the truths that we are singing as we sing songs unto the Lord we must be consciously aware mentally aware of the truths that we are singing about God and ultimately I think this calls us to sing unto the Lord and not unto men 
sing with fear of the Lord in our hearts and not with uh, the fear of man. And so I think oftentimes we have this tentativeness to, to sing out and to sing fervently unto the Lord for fear of man. Others around us are going to hear us, uh, but the Lord calls us to sing anyways. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, right? And so we joke about that sometimes, but it's also biblically serious. Sing and make a joyful noise unto the Lord and sing unto the Lord and not unto men. And he calls us to rejoice in the Lord then, secondly, by meditating on his word and on his works. Look with me at verse 4. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is trustworthy. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the Lord's unfading love, unfailing love. And so the psalmist then calls us to rejoice in God's good works and in his good words. This verse here, verse 4, particularly is a summary statement for what's going to come for the rest of the psalm. It, uh, it begins to highlight for us the kind of things that we should be meditating on and reflecting on in our worship of God. And it begins with his word, and it calls it right. It calls it just. It calls it perfectly good. His word is true. All of his commandments upon our lives are good. Whatever God has ordained is right. His word is good. But his works are good as well. They are trustworthy and faithful, the psalmist says. And God acts according to his character always. This, I think, speaks to the unchanging character of God. His works are trustworthy in that we can trust them over and over to be consistent. God acts according to his unchanging, immutable character. And this is seen in his love of righteousness and justice as he deals unchangeably righteous and deals unchangeably just with his people and in his creation. He acts justly and righteously in all that he does. This is expressed to us as his people in his unfailing love, his steadfast love that is unwavering to us because it is a covenantal steadfast love. And so he shows his effectual love to his people. Every act of God is marked by this unfailing, steadfast love. Oh, how different we are than God in that way. Yes, we're made in his image, but as fallen creatures, we are inconsistent at best and hypocritical and deceptive at our worst. But God is perfectly consistent and perfectly trustworthy in his character. Therefore, this psalmist calls us to sing praise and rejoice in him and delight in his goodness. And so now he begins to lay out some of those things that we can meditate on and think upon in our worship. Verse 6 says, The heavens were made by the word of the Lord, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into a heap. He puts the depths into the storehouses. Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came into being. He commanded, and it came into existence. And so the psalmist begins by calling us to rejoice in God's work of creation. And we spent some, some significant time in this in Genesis, and so I don't want to spend a, a, a significant amount of time here this morning, but we recognize first that God's creation comes into existence by mere speech. 
by mere word of his mouth. He speaks it into existence. Verse 6 tells us it's by the word of his mouth and by the breath of his mouth that it comes into existence. And verse 9 tells us that he speaks and it exists. Things that were not now come into existence by the command of God. He creates by speech and he creates out of nothing. There's no pre-existing material for God to work with. Everything that is is because God has willed it to be. And he controls it by his sovereign power. He gathers the waters into a heap. He brings them into storehouses. He has sovereign control and sovereign power over everything that he has brought into existence. He governs it and sustains it. It's brought into existence by Trinitarian act. This is not Father, Son, and Spirit working unilaterally from one another in that way but father son and spirit are acting together in creation verse 6 tells us the heavens were made by the word of the lord and all the stars by the breath of his mouth or the wind of his mouth well it's no wonder that john says that it is the word of god who was in the beginning with god and it was the word who was god and we looked in genesis chapter 1 in creation that by divine speech, it is God the Son who is present in the beginning, bringing all things into existence. And it's the Spirit of God hovering over His creation, forming, shaping, and molding all to the glory of God. And so Father, Son, and Spirit are working in a Trinitarian act of creation, ultimately for the praise of His glory. Verse 8 says, let the whole earth fear the Lord, because the whole earth and everyone in it owes their existence to God himself. But not only are we to rejoice in God's work of creation, we're to rejoice in God's work of providence. You see, there are some who would say that God sets his creation into motion, but he doesn't really govern it or control it. But we believe as Christians that God sovereignly governs the creation that he has made. Look at verse 10. The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. We see here that God has ordered and decreed all things according to his perfect counsel. He is ruling over human affairs. Proverbs 21.1 says that God has the king's heart in his hand but like a channeled water and he directs it wherever he chooses and so those who seek to oppose God are opposed by him he frustrates their counsel and upholds his own will he thwarts the plans of man and sustains his own sovereign plans Psalm 2 even tells us that those who would seek to rebel against the will and counsel and purposes of God God laughs and so God here rules all things, including human affairs, according to the counsel of his will. Isaiah says in Isaiah 46, remember what happened long ago, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. I call a bird of prey from the east, a man for my purpose from a far country. Yes, I have spoken, so I will also bring it about. I have planned it, and I will also do it. 
So we rejoice in the Lord who has sovereign control and governance over his creation. He has declared the end from the beginning in every human event, every event in human history down to the most mundane and ordinary of daily events have been purposed by God. He upholds his purposes in this world. And this is good because God is good. We have read that he is righteous and just. We have read that he is trustworthy and faithful. And because of his goodness, it is good that God controls and has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. And so, dear Christian, as we think about God's sovereignty, even over our own lives, there's certainly no way that we could exhaust a list of ways in which God is sovereignly in control over the life of a believer. But I want us to think about some of those things this evening. As we think about Romans 8, 28, it says, And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. You see, here we read of God's sovereign purposes that stand in the world. His counsel stands forever in the plans of his heart from generation to generation. And that includes you and me and the purposes and plans that he has for us. And those begin in eternity past with electing us and choosing us for himself before the foundation of the world. It continues in him calling us effectually to saving faith, regenerating us and making us alive in Christ all by the sovereign will and purposes of God. He purchased our pardon on the cross of Calvary, which, by the way, he himself ordained for Christ to be put to death by the hands of sinful men so that you and I could be saved and reconciled to him. He justifies us, Paul says, those he calls, he also justifies. He justifies us by faith in Christ Jesus. Yes, according to Romans 8.30, predestination has everything to do with justification. He sovereignly works sanctifying grace in us. He says in Philippians 2.13 that he works in us the, the will and the ability to work according to his good purpose. Everything in the life of the believer is working out according to God's divine purposes. He says in Romans 8, 28, we know all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And so, dear Christian, as we think about the purposes and plans of God from generation to generation that cannot be thwarted, that includes every single solitary instant of our life, whether we consider it good or bad, for good or for evil, everything happens for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes, set apart according to his counsels. They work together for the good, that is the Christ-likeness, the conformity to the image of God's dear Son, Everything works together to make us more like Christ. And God has purposed it from the beginning. And his plans will not, shall not, cannot be thwarted. And ultimately, as Paul ends Romans 8.30, that we shall be, he also glorified. That God has ordained that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. The work that he has begun because God is faithful, trustworthy, righteous, and just. God will bring that work to completion in those who love him. And so we rejoice in God's work and purposes of providence in the world. 
And finally, as we consider the last several verses of this text, we rejoice in God's work of deliverance. We see God's work of creation. We see God's work of providence. But we also work rejoice in God's work of deliverance. And so let's move through these quickly. We read there in verse 12, Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen to be his own possession. The Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. He forms the heart of them all. He considers all their works. And so we read here that God watches over his people, first and foremost, because he's chosen them. Happy is the nation that, whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen for his own possession. And I understand that there is an ethnic reality to this in Psalm 33. But we also read in the book of Titus that he has purchased us. He has redeemed us to make us a people of his own possession. These old covenant promises are fulfilled in Christ in new covenant promise to us. And so we are his people chosen by him and redeemed to be a people of his own possession. And though God sees all, knows all, observes all and watches over all. He sets his special and unique gaze upon those who belong to him. You see in verse 18 it says, But look, the Lord keeps his eye on those who fear him, those who depend on his faithful love to rescue them from death and to keep them alive in famine. He is watching over us so that he can intervene with grace, help, and provision, keeping us from stumbling and sustaining our lives both physically and spiritually. God is actively watching over us as his people and protecting us by his hand. He protects us and keeps us. It says particularly in verse 19 to rescue them from death and to keep them alive in famine. We recognize an element of God's provision and sovereign governance here in our lives in this way. And so finally the psalmist concludes and says therefore basically we wait on the Lord. We put our hope in him. He is our help and our shield. Our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in his holy name. And so reflecting on the goodness and character of God causes us to rejoice, but it also causes us to wait on him, rest in him, and hope in him. We see God as creator and sovereign and our saving deliverer. Therefore, we put our hope in him and trust in him. And no one who trusts in God is ever disappointed. And all who hope in God will not be put to shame. And so, dear Christian, as we think about God's sovereignty and providence, as we think of God's creative power as he reveals himself in creation, and as we think about God's active hand and watchfulness over our lives, let us rejoice in the Lord always. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you uh, for this psalm that reminds us of your goodness, reminds you of your power, reminds you of your grace to us. And so, Father, we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to meditate on these truths of you as we sing now and, and sing week after week as a church together. Lord, bring to mind, stir to remembrance truths about you that we might sing in a way that glorifies your name. Father, help us to rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.